0: You remember when David was nearing the end of his life. The Bible doesn't picture a man that pictures David in times far before that as one of the four men that were handsome and built well. The Bible pictures him not as a great physical specimen any longer. But the Bible pictures him as a decrepit old man that was failing in his frailties at about 70 years old, the Bible says. And David was failing so that he was unable to even regulate his own body temperature. And so the Bible says that a fair maiden was chosen, a beautiful young lady. And she would stand before him and help him in this regard. And her name was Abishag the Shunammite. Well, the Bible says, though, that, and really the Bible kind of pictures, that she would be a concubine of the king. And yet at the same time, the scripture says, but David knew her not, and so there wasn't a physical relationship between David, King David, at the end of his life, and Abishag, the Shunammite, but you remember that the eldest living son of King David was a man named Adonijah, and he considered himself to be entitled to the throne, I mean, after all, he was the eldest living son, why should he not stand, why should he not sit on the throne of David when his father is taken out of the way? You know, the Bible pictures this very idea that, that, uh, that uh, this man, uh, Adonijah, Adonijah would go with all the pomp and circumstance and all the pomp and pride among the people. He would go with great chariots and ch- he would be riding in a chariot with horses pulling that chariot. He would take a page out of the past, uh, you remember, of Absalom when Absalom tried to overthrow the throne of King David in times prior to this. That he would take the example of his brother. And he would have 50 men and those 50 men would go on before him to herald his coming. Oh, it was loud, it was boisterous, it was powerful, it was a great spectacle. Here he comes, the son of the king that would sit on the throne. But you know, this was a man that had a callous disregard for God and a callous disregard for his father's wishes as well. But you remember with the help of Nathan and Bathsheba, David was persuaded to act quickly and install Solomon on the throne as king. And so Adonijah's attempted coup failed. And so what he does is he flees to the altar. He realizes that the things that he had done and and the acts that he had committed were worthy of death. He had committed treason in the eyes of the kingdom. And the Bible says he flees to the altar. You know, when the Bible says that, it's obvious that he knew he was wrong. He flees to the altar. You know, Wednesday night, we're talking about the heart a little bit. We've talked about the heart so many times in so many sermons over so many years about God knowing the intentions of the heart. This was not just an idea that he thought, well, after all, I'm the eldest son, so I'll be the king. And misunderstood what God had instructed and what God had wanted for Solomon. That was not the case at all. There was nothing innocent at all in the heart of this man. And the fact that he flees to the altar realizing that he's gonna die, no doubt he felt the guilt that he had done wrong. But you know, he doesn't have a repentant heart. In fact, the Bible says he grabs onto the horns of the altar. Remember what that was? They were those protrusions that stuck out at the four corners of the altar that looked like animal horns and so here he is he's hanging on to the animal horns Solomon knows where he is though and Solomon sends word he says you summon him to come to me but Adonijah says no he says I'm not going anywhere until Solomon and this is this is a very important point to our narrative today he says I am not gonna turn loose of the horns of this altar and I am not going to go where Solomon is. And I am not going to stand before the king until Solomon swears with an oath that I will not be executed for my crime. You know, Solomon never swears with an oath he only promises. He says this. Now, I think this is a, it's a wonderful picture of someone getting mercy or having mercy extended to them when they were not worthy. You know what Solomon said? Solomon said this. He said, you will not die, and I promise you will as long as you're a loyal subject to me as the king, as I sit on the throne, and, another point, and there's no new crime, no fresh crime, nothing else that you do against the throne, you will live. And you will not die. But you know, after the collapse of this attempted coup, Adonijah pledged his allegiance to Solomon. And he bows down before Solomon. He bows down before his throne. And he says he pledges allegiance to him as the king. But if we could only examine his heart, we would see that that was only an outward show. Isn't that a picture of people today? Bowing before the throne. Giving allegiance on the outward, or showing themselves to give allegiance unto Christ and his kingdom sitting on his throne, only to have it be only outwardly and not inwardly with the heart. Well, we know that's exactly what happened with this young man because of his actions <laughs> later. And not long after the death of David, Adonijah attempted to lay the groundwork for yet another coup. Attempt, and here it is. All of a sudden, he's going to put together a subtle plan. Now before, it wasn't a subtle plan. It was, look at me. I'm the man. I'm the guy. I'm going to sit on the throne, and like, like just like Absalom did regarding King David and overthrowing his throne or his attempt to do so. Now this is going to be different. He's going to be extremely smart here, and he's going to figure out a subtle plan in order that he might overtake the throne. Now, he knew that Solomon said, you're not going to die. You will not be executed as long as you don't do anything else. But the plan included Abishag, the Shunammite, the ex-concubine of King David, of the deceased king, his own father. And the Bible says that he calls or he comes to see uh, Bathsheba. And in this subtle plan, this, he goes to see the most powerful woman in the land, Bathsheba, the queen mother. You know, she was suspicious at first when Adonijah came calling, but his tactics disarmed her and turned her into an ally. I want you to look at these things. These things are uh, applicable today when we do such things like this. self Pity was the very first thing that he used. Self-pity. You know what he says to Bathsheba? He says, you know, the kingdom was mine. After all, I come in peace, but the kingdom was mine. And then he gives a tremendous exaggeration here. He says, all of Israel was ready to install me and put me on the throne and recognize me as the king, which wasn't true. Not all of Israel, but that's the exaggeration. He says, I was to be the man. I am the eldest son of the king that now is dead of my father. It should have been me that's sitting on the throne. Here's the self-pity part. But then all of a sudden, even though I should have been him, my younger brother Solomon, he was placed on the throne. You know, he's kind of painting a picture of woe is me. Oh, I've been wounded. I've been affected. Isn't that what we do sometimes? I'll tell you, when our heart is filled with self-pity, you can't see outside yourself. You really can't. If you have self-pity, and that's all you're focusing in on is yourself, what you didn't get. It's all about me, how you were wronged. You cannot have the Christian spirit and the Christian heart that Jesus taught when we need to look outside of ourselves and look to someone else. Can't do it. Can't do it, you know why? Thinking about me. If Terry and I have a disagreement, I'm thinking about me. We're not fixing our problem, by the way, because all I'm thinking about is me, how I was wronged. Oh, I was wronged. You know, somebody does not necessarily have to have an evil-spirited, conniving, deceptive heart like Adonijah had to be guilty of having self-pity. Let me give you an example. You know, the Bible pictures, you remember when the seven years of plenty had passed, and now they were into the seven years of famine, You remember when Jacob goes to his remaining sons and he tells his sons, I hear that there is grain in Egypt. Take your sacks and go there and see if you can buy some grain lest we all die. Lest we starve to death. They went there. It's Joseph. Joseph recognizes his brothers. They don't recognize him. They get the grain. They accuse them of being spies. They says, no, we're shepherds. We've got a father back home. We had a brother. That's Joseph. He is no more, though. And we have a younger brother, too. Benjamin, he's back at home. And then when Joseph says, all right, here's what you're going to do. I'm going to sell you the grain or else you're going to starve to death. But I'm going to sell you the grain. And when you go back, I, you have to bring your youngest brother, Benjamin, to me that I might look on him, that I might see him. And to make it that you're doing it in good faith. One of you has to stay behind and stay with me. And you remember, even though Reuben was the eldest, it was Simeon that was chosen. Simeon stayed. Say it all that to say this. You remember when they came and stood back before Jacob? They were standing before Jacob, and this is what he said. Oh, they treated us bad. They called us spies. They were harsh to us. We told them about you. We told them about Benjamin. And he says, if we don't bring Benjamin back, Simeon has to stay. And Jacob falls apart. He never feels sorry for anyone else. He says these words. He never feels sorry that Simeon was left behind. That Simeon now is the innocent party, but he's left behind. He says this. Everything is against me. I've lost Rachel. I've lost Joseph. I've now lost Simeon. And I'm not about to lose Benjamin. Thinking only of the things that happen to him. When we think that way, it causes us to not be able to have the ability to see outside of ourselves and see that somebody else may have it worse than we have it. He was filled with self-pity, but he used this as a tool to break down her defenses and gain her as an ally. Look how he builds on this. He starts with self-pity. After all, I was supposed to be the man. I was supposed to sit on the throne. It was supposed to be me. All the people, all of Israel were ready to install me as the king and recognize me as the king. But after all, the great injustice happened to me. I was taken out of the way and my younger brother now sits on the throne. Number two, hypocritical piety. He says this. He says, I was taken out of the way, but I know that the Lord had chosen Solomon. He didn't care about that. He just uses that. I know it was the Lord's will that that was going to happen. You know, when we pray, we pray, we ask in faith believing. The Bible says we must. We ask in faith believing. Okay? And we're not tossed to and fro, we we ask in faith believing, but we do so according to his will. Do we say if it be thy will, or if it be your will, do we say that just as words, or do we really mean it? It was the Lord's will that Solomon would be on the throne, and he says, or he acts like, it was the Lord's will, so he is accepting of it. But he wasn't at all. And then he says to her, he says, I need your help. He says, do not deny me this one little thing. You know, if he would have come to her and requested what he wanted to request right off the bat, maybe she would have had her defenses up. Oh, but this is a cunning, crafty, deceptive man who's building his case and looking for allies. And guess what? Then flattery kicks in. And he says to her, he says, Solomon, your son will never say no to you. You have the authority and you have the power to do something that no one else has. I am coming to you and appealing to you, and I'm appealing to you as the queen mother. Surely Solomon is not going to say no to you. Just grant me this one request. And then all of a sudden he says, here's my request. And this is a falsehood too. He pretended to be in love. He says, all I ask for, all I ask for is that I would have the hand of Abishag the Shunammite. That's all I want. After all, look at all that happened to me. They took it all away. You can do this. You can go and speak to Solomon. You can make this happen. And everything's going to be okay. All I want is the hand of Abishag. Well, the Bible says that she goes and she speaks to Solomon. As she enters into the throne room, they exchange courtesies. And you know what's a, what's a beautiful picture to me? What seems to be a very beautiful picture is here is Solomon. He is the king, and he is in the throne room. He is there on his throne. He is the king, and in walks his mother. And the Bible says that he bows before her in honor of his mother. And then he prepares a place of honor. You know, when the Bible talks about being at the right hand, it's a place of honor. Jesus right now is on the right hand of the throne of God in a place of honor on his throne. King Solomon, for the queen mother, prepares a place right next to him on his right hand. And she sits there and she begins to ask him for this request. She says this. She says, I would only ask you but one little thing, one small thing. You know, I think that she was just basically, I think she was deceived. I don't think that for one minute that she thought that she was doing anything wrong. And I really believe when she said the words to Solomon, I only asked but one small thing, that she really believed it was just a small thing. Not realizing the implications. She was deceived by someone who had plotted this whole thing out. She says, grant me but this one small thing, and please don't say no. Now, I'm going to tell you something. If your mother came to you and says, I want to just ask you a favor. It's just a little thing. Would you do it? How many of us would say no? Now, we might say, we might say, well, what is it? Well, let me know what that is first, and then make our judgments based on what we're going to do when we hear what it is. Now, I would imagine that we would say that to just about anybody else. But I know, for example, I've walked up to Daryl. He had no idea what I was going to say. And I said, Daryl, would you do me a favor? Well, yeah, what? Sure. Without hearing what it is. Because when you're close to somebody, you don't really care what it is. You're going to do whatever it is. If it's going to help that person, you love that person, that's family. They're close to you. And if they are in need, you're going to ask. You're going to ask for it, and they're going to do it. She says... To Solomon, please don't say no. And he says, I will grant you this request. What is it? <clears throat> Little did he know that she was going to ask something that he could not grant. She says, All I ask is that the former concubine of King David, Abishag the Shunammite, be given to Adonijah, your brother. That's all. You know, the Bible says that Solomon was furious. Not only did he say no, but he was furious. And you know what he says? He says in his response, why did you only ask for the hand of Abishag the Shunammite? Why didn't you just say, would you go ahead and give the entire kingdom over to Adonijah? You see, here was the point. The point was, taking possession of a wife or a harem of a deceased king was equivalent to a claim to the throne. That's really the heart of Adonijah. He didn't care about her. He wasn't in love. He wanted a leg up. He wanted to now. He had his big boisterous plan. Now his subtle plan. If I could just do that, it's a leg up in the kingdom. Solomon viewed this petition of Adonijah as conclusive proof that Adonijah was involved in yet another conspiracy. Therefore, he would be executed. You know, being lenient with his elder brother once, Solomon was in no mood to ignore the further threat that Adonijah posed to his rule. And so in the presence of all those that were in the throne room, he swore a solemn oath that Adonijah would die that very day. He dispatched Benaiah, captain of the palace guard, to execute his half-brother, and the order was immediately carried out. Now, notice the following. For those that might be tempted to look on the execution of Adonijah, his half-brother, as a ruthless misuse of royal power, please ponder the following points. Number one, had Adonijah's first rebellion succeeded, both Solomon and his mother would have been killed. 1 Kings chapter 1 and verse 12. Number two, by fleeing to the altar following the collapse of his conspiracy, Adonijah was admitting that he deserved the death of a traitor. Number three, Solomon already displayed great mercy toward Adonijah once, and already, instead of executing him, he placed him on probation. He gave him every opportunity to behave himself and to be a good subject to the king. Number four, Adonijah had been duly warned that if the wickedness were found in him, that he would be killed. 1 Kings chapter 1 and verse 52. Number 5. For Solomon to ignore this second offense might suggest that the king was weak, and such weakness would be an encouragement to sedition throughout the land. Therefore, he would be executed. You remember Joab, General Joab? Oh, what a character that Joab was. He was the commander of all the army. He was a man that stood valiantly and fought great battles. Fought great battles for King David. But yet he, he had killed those that were innocent. When Joab hears of the execution of Adonijah and the expulsion of Abiathar, he was a priest, he knew that he would be next. Joab had not supposed Absalom, had not followed or supported Absalom in his rebellion But he did support Adonijah in his ill-fated conspiracy against Solomon. He realizes that treason treason was a capital crime, and he does what Adonijah had done previously. He runs to the house of God. He goes to the throne. He throws himself to the altar, and he grabs onto the same horns, quote-unquote, that Adonijah grabbed onto, hoping he would find sanctuary there. His flight to the altar indicates that he had been involved in in the Abishag incident as well. Solomon regarded Joab's flight to uh, to the altar as proof of his continuing treasonous intentions. He orders Benaiah to go and slay the old general, but Joab won't let go. And Benaiah was afraid to go and slay him right there at the altar. He says, Solomon wants to see you. You've been summoned by the king, but he won't come, and he won't let go. And Benaiah goes back and talks to Solomon and asks Solomon, he says, what should I do? He says, you kill him right there. You slay him right where he stands. You know, Solomon spells out the reasons why he told Beniah to do this. Number one, the altar provided no sanctuary for murderers. Therefore, the king ordered Benaiah to slay Joab at the altar. Only by the shedding of blood of this guilty man could the innocent blood of Abner and Amasa be washed away from the house of David. Numbers 15 and 33. As chief magistrate of the land, Solomon considered it his obligation to avenge the death of murder victims. As if the execution, though, of Joab needed any further justification, Solomon adds these words, that the victims of Joab's sword were better men than their assassins. You know, though many people no doubt suspected David of of criminal complicity in these murders, the deeds were actually done without his knowledge. And by avenging the death of the innocent, the stain of blood, meaning the obligation to punish, would be removed from the house of David forever. And as a consequence, the descendants of David would prosper. On the other hand, the children of Joab would always have to live with the stigma that their father had been executed as a murderer. The Bible says that he was executed, Joab was killed, and he was buried. Solomon filled the vacant posts of general, of the army, and high priest with his friends Benaiah and Zadok. But finally, along this line... You remember who Shimei was. Shimei was the one that was, no doubt, some distant relative of King Saul. And when Absalom was going to overthrow or trying to overthrow David on the throne, and when David is walking along and David is weeping and David with his head bowed low, and what a sorrowful time it was... This was the man that was standing there saying the reason that all these things are happening to you is because what you've done against King Saul and you're paying for it. This is the same man that started throwing rocks at David as he walked by. You know, nobody forgot those things. But you know, even though Shemai had recently been with Solomon, 1 Kings chapter 1 and verse 8, His earlier outburst against David made Solomon suspicious of him. Isn't that true? Isn't that true that people look to us and people either have confidence in us or they do not have confidence in us based upon our behavior in the past? Man, that's true. You can be forgiven of wrongs that you have committed. In fact, when the Bible talks about forgiveness, there is no number. It's an infinite number. And when my brother sins against me, I am to forgive him an infinite number of times. But like I have said before, if Ryan's stealing chickens, after five or six of those guys, I'm going to forgive him, but I'm building a better fence. I'm going to keep the chickens in. You know why? Oh, I forgive him. I don't trust him. Shimei wasn't trusted Because his life was not such that he was trustworthy. And I'll tell you something, folks, that happens to us. If we are not trustworthy, it's because we have not lived our life demonstrating the fact that we are worthy of such trust. But you know there's mercy extended that Solomon extends to him. Solomon doesn't say, he doesn't come right out and say, you're going to be executed right now. He just doesn't trust him, and he knew, going back to the first chapter, that this man had at least verbally, he at least came out verbally and said, I'm with you, Solomon, I'm with you all the way, I'm recognizing you as king, and all of that, so he doesn't execute him, but he didn't trust him, he tells him to build a house in Jerusalem, and he tells him this, you may never, ever, ever leave the capital, He said, in the day that you leave, in the day that you depart, you're going to be killed, get this, for the crimes that you had committed against the throne. You know, that goes all the way back to David. The crimes he committed against David. So in other words, these are crimes that are still there in the memory bank. These are crimes that are still there. But you're not going to lose your life. You're going to be able to live. I'll leave you alone in that regard. I'm watching you, though. Build a house in Jerusalem. You can never, ever leave. And if you do, you would be killed. Three years go by. Maybe Shimei's guard has now been let down. Maybe he thought, I don't know if he premeditated this. I have no idea. We don't know. The Bible doesn't say. But there were some actions that he was going to do. He was going to break the oath that he had made with Solomon. And you know, it was a serious matter. He broke the oath. When he broke the oath to Solomon, he broke the oath to God. The Bible says that two of his slaves, two of his servants take off. They don't want to be in the house of Shimei any longer. And they take off and they go to Gath. And they go to seek refuge of the king named Achish. Remember Achish with King David? Scholars say this is probably his grandson. In the land of the Philistines when David sought refuge with Achish a long time before that when he was trying to get away from Saul who was out to kill him. This is probably, scholars say, this Achish was probably that Achish's grandson. You know what he does? Without thinking, maybe he did think, we don't know, but Shimei decides he takes off and he wants to go get those slaves back. That sounds okay, isn't it? I just want to get my guys back. I just want to get what's rightfully mine. But in doing so, he leaves And he breaks the vow. He breaks the oath that he had with Solomon and to God. And he basically is saying this. Every single thing that you promised me were the conditions. I am not going to abide by that. Therefore, I am worthy of death. And that's exactly what happened. You think Solomon forgot? You think Solomon let it go? You think in the three years that had gone by that Solomon just kind of thought it maybe not... That big of a deal. The Bible says that when he is summoned to the palace, Shimei stands before Solomon and Solomon lodged a threefold charge against him. And here they are. He had profaned the name of God by violating a solemn oath taken in the name of God. Number two, he had violated the terms of his probation, thus disregarding the commands of the king. And number three, Shimei had cursed and blasphemed the Lord's anointed, and that was David. Even that sin was brought before him. I'll tell you this. The Bible tells us how to live. It came up in a question on a Wednesday night about Ananias and Sapphira, his wife and how they lied and as the Bible says you didn't lie to men, you lied to God they kept back part of the price they were deceptive, deceitful, liars and God struck them both dead right then and there and the question was why did God strike them dead right then and there but not today Why did he do it then and not now? You know, these are questions for God to answer in God's time. Before the word of God, though, was revealed, there were things like that. There were miraculous things like that. But I'll tell you this. You know what's scary? Is if I'm not doing that which is right, tomorrow I'm probably going to wake up. And I'm probably going to have a nice day. And I'm going to have all kinds of activities in the day. I'm either going to prosper or I am not. But it'll be a day like any other day. And if I'm still not doing that which is right, the next day might come. And then a week, and then a month, and then maybe a year, maybe many years. And now my heart no longer bothers me. My conscience no longer bothers me by the life that I live. And I'm just going right along. I'll tell you this. If I lose my life, I've got no chance when there's breath in me I can change I can do that which is right what did Solomon say to to this man he says as long as you do what's right you're gonna live and as long as you don't do anything else in the future against the throne you're gonna live and as long as you do what I say and stay there in Jerusalem and don't leave the capital you're gonna live folks the Bible says Be not deceived, God is not mocked, for whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. There's a payday someday, there's a day of reckoning, there's a day that I will pay for the things that I have done in this body, in this life, either rewarded or punished in eternity, in a devil's hell, for eternity, based on what I have done. Three years passed, Solomon didn't forget, And this man was executed for his crimes. And so by swiftly eliminating four potential antagonists, now Adonijah, Abiathar, Joab, and Shimei, Solomon firmly establishes himself as king. But finally now, and this will be the remaining part of our sermon, there was a day when Solomon is going to have a time with God. And God asks Solomon, he says, of all the things that I can grant thee, what is it that you want from me? And I think that there's a point here that we need not to just brush by. I don't think that in this narrative, I don't think that in this particular instance, God was saying, whatever you want, you can have. It doesn't say that. It just says that God asked of him, what is it that I can do for you? God asks Solomon those words In a dream. In other words, God was speaking to him in this dream, literally. And as he begins, you know what Solomon says? He says, first of all, he thanks God because God is allowing the son of David to sit on the throne. To keep the crown in the family. And to sit on the throne. He goes on to say to God, he says, I am but a little child. Let me ask you something. If you were just now exalted by all the people, all Israel, and God, and you were God's anointed, and you were the son of the king, and you are a man with great wisdom, and you are a man that everybody respected, and you now are sitting on the throne, would you look to yourself with humility like that? Solomon says, I am but a little child. He says, and your people are so great. Man, that's great. Your people are so great. How can I rule your people without your help? I feel inadequate in this regard. You know the greatest men are people that have that kind of heart. You know, when you feel like, it's like in sports. When a kid or a player gets to the point... Where he no longer feels like he needs to be coached and he no longer is coachable. He's gone as far as he's going to go. I'm going to tell you something. Solomon was a great man at this point in time. He says to God, I'm but a little child. I need your help. So he asks for this. He says, please grant me a discerning heart. This word discerning means literally a hearing heart. Why? Why? that I might judge or rule your people better, and that in doing so, I would be able to discern or determine what was true and what was false, what was right and what was wrong. You know why God granted his request? The Bible says God granted his request because he didn't ask for riches, he didn't ask for honor, he didn't ask for a long life. Think about it. Of all that Solomon could have asked for, he could have asked for honor among his his peers. He could have asked for praise among the people. He could have asked for great riches. He could have asked for, and this is what God said, you could have even asked that I would take away all of your enemies and grant you victory over every one of them. But you didn't. What you asked for was a tool to better lead and rule the people of God. That's a powerful thing. And God says, because of that, I'm going to grant this to you, and I'm going to give you wisdom that far surpasses anyone that has ever lived and anyone that will live in the future, save Jesus Christ, the only one. No other man ever had the wisdom that Solomon had. No other man but Solomon was able to do what Solomon did and make the decisions that Solomon made. There's a lot of folks here today that have gray hair. I don't have any gray hair, but I'm getting older. Some folks lose their hair. We get wrinkled, we get older. And with each passing year that goes by, don't you just look back on your life and think, man, if I would have known then what I know now, that's wisdom. Wouldn't it be great to be a young man and have wisdom? Oh, we know it all when we're younger, have virtually no wisdom. But through life by our own challenges and by making it through the things that happen to us by our own challenges in our life, we learn wisdom. We also learn wisdom by the experience of others and we gain wisdom when we ask it from God and He gives it liberally. God never gave it any more liberally than He did to Solomon a long time ago. And He says you're going to have wisdom that far surpasses anyone that's ever lived and anyone that has li- will live in the future times. But because you didn't ask for these things, he says, I'm going to give you riches, too, that far surpass everyone else. I'm going to give you honor as well, because you've never asked for these things. But then he says, I'm going to give you a long life or years of life. And you know, of all the things that he says, that was the one thing that was conditional. He says, I'm going to give you something that's conditional. I'm going to give you a long life. You're going to have a long life only if you continue to walk in the way of God and do so all the days of your life. Only then will your life be lengthened. You know, this brings us to a close of these political matters. His discourse with God, God's great blessings down upon him. And The very next thing we learn is about two women and a baby. He puts it into motion, this wisdom that God said he was going to have. I just wonder this. Of all the things we could ask God for, I mean really, of all things, of all the choices and decisions we've made in our life, of all the things that we can look back on and ask God, wouldn't it be things like honor, maybe a better job? No, no telling what we'd ask for. Solomon asked for the greatest thing he could have. Get this now. He asked for something that would help him to better serve God's people. Now, man, that's it. And because of that, he was blessed far above and beyond anyone that had ever lived. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information, or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 10:30 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7:30 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.